this is Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to Season 3 of our podcast. In this episode, we welcome three guests who will share with us their knowledge of the material and cultural history of machines. Megan Kennedy shares her knowledge of 19th century microscopes. Richard Menke reflects on the history of the machine gun. And Jason Camlot talks with us about phonographs and the voices they recorded. Let's begin. Megan Kennedy is the author of Revising the Clinic, Vision and Representation in Victorian Medicine and the Novel. She's also a member of the Department of English at Florida State University. Megan joins us today to talk about microscopes and the ways microscope use shaped Victorian culture from daily life to literature. Thanks for being here, Megan. Oh, thank you for having me. I always love a chance to talk about microscopes. I became interested when I was writing my first book, and I just kept running across these incredible descriptions of microscopes, how they work, the things you look at through microscopes. And I realized that um, while that wasn't an integral part of the book I was writing, that it was something else I wanted to learn more about. And uh, I, I think they just get more interesting the more you know about them. I wonder if we could start, for those of us with very little knowledge of these tools, with a bit of an introduction to 19th century microscopes. Yeah, so the 19th century was a period when a lot was happening in microscopy. There had certainly been microscopes in British culture going back to the 1600s. And in the 1800s, they actually were kind of a, a popular toy for fashionable ladies. But this was all with simple microscopes, which have just a single lens. Compound microscopes that scientists mostly use now were not in great use until about 1830 when Joseph Jackson Lister, working with the optician William Tully, worked out a way to create a compound microscope that didn't have too many flaws or aberrations. And that really helped kickstart microscopy in the Victorian period. Megan, you're giving us a sense here of the diversity of the users of microscopes in this period, but can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. This is what is, I think, maybe not as well understood, but we think about 19th century microscopes as being something that was really important for developments in science at the time, such as the development of bacteriology uh, and germ theory. And, and of course, all of those things are true. But there were also a number of ways that microscopes were involved in Victorian culture for ordinary people. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I do hope to, to get across with my research. So there was a, a kind of culture of what was called brass and glass, which is a culture of fancy microscopes where uh, if you had a fair amount of money, you could go to one of the famous British microscope makers like Powell and Leland or Andrew Ross or Smith and Beck, and you could buy a really fancy microscope that had a lot of attachments to it. Probably the most famous one of those is Powell and Leland's number one, which was developed, first put on the market in 1869, and then they just kind of kept it on the market virtually unchanged for, you know, decades after that. And at the time that it was released, it was 187 pounds, and today that's almost $30,000. Um, and it had just all kinds of gadgets with it. I mean, this is where, you know, today we might make jokes about how when you become enthusiastic about something, you want to run out and buy all of the gadgets for it. And you could really see this happening. People joked about it in microscope culture as well. But it wasn't necessarily the only way that you could have a microscope. One of the most famous microscopists was John Queckett. In fact, they ended up naming the Queckett Microscopical Club after him. There was a famous anecdote about him that at the age of 16, he delivered a course of lectures on microscopical topics with, um, and this is a quote, a microscope manufactured by himself out of a roasting jack, a parasol, and a piece of brass that he bought from a, a you know, marine supply store. And there are other anecdotes like that uh, in, in you know, the microscopical literature, that there is kind of this heroic, you know, cobbling things together. And articles on how to make your own microscope. 
Uh, people who might not have been handy with their hands could buy, by the 1850s, they could buy an inexpensive microscope. There was actually a contest to uh, the Society of Arts, which you might be familiar with. They helped to organize the Great Exhibition of 1851. The Society of Arts actually had a contest for manufacturers to provide an inexpensive microscope, less than three guineas, and it had to have a certain number of elements. And actually, the firm that won this contest, Field & Son, in 1854, they ended up going bankrupt a few decades later because of the terms of this contest where they had to continue offering the microscope at three guineas or less and, you know, still with all of the same paraphernalia included with it. And it's just a great example of how Victorians were really trying to democratize microscopy, although we do have to recognize that even, I mean, three guineas is still a fair amount of money, right, for, for most families at that time. And for people who maybe couldn't afford that, One of the most well-known popularizers, the Reverend J.G. Wood, he talks about how, upon a pinch, a very respectable microscope may be extemporized out of a strip of cardwood or metal and a drop of water. So that, you know, even if you couldn't afford, you know, a roasting jack, a parasol, and a piece of, you know, marine supply, you could maybe have a strip of cardboard and a a drop of water. You could use that to, to look at the things around you. Well, let's talk about looking at things and what Victorians were looking at, Megan. I recently heard you speak about, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, animalcules. And I was intrigued by what you shared. What are animalcules and what did Victorians think of them? Yeah, animalcules is such a fun word. Um, It is a term that was used to describe living microscopic creatures and during this time period is actually when people started shifting away from calling them animalcules and toward calling them other things like infusoria um, or organisms even. But animalcules is still a term that shows up a lot and in specific settings especially so that there would be lantern microscope shows. Uh, I know that you're probably familiar with magic lanterns and how those worked in the 19th century. And at places like the Adelaide Gallery or the Royal Polytechnic, they would have lantern shows, magic lantern shows that had a microscope component to them. And they would show all of these little creatures wriggling around on the screen. And it's just so fascinating reading the audience responses to these shows because I mean, it's it's very much like what we have today where we go to the movies and we're sitting in this darkened room and we're looking at what's projected up on the screen. And the kinds of things that were being shown were framed as, as narratives. So quite often they would put predator and prey animalcules into the same drop of water and the audience would maybe watch a kind of the carnage, right? A kind of a bread and circuses moment. So that that was an example of this kind of narrative tension and suspense uh, as people were watching this take place on the, on the big screen. I've had the chance to see a little bit of surviving film footage. I think it was projected at the Alhambra at a certain point of cheese mites. And uh, it it was uh, intriguing for what it showed. So uh, I I feel like I've had that experience that those Victorian viewers had. Yeah. I mean, cheese mites, it's funny to think of it now, right? But cheese mites were uh, one of the, I don't know, iconic items, objects that would be projected. And um, and so much so, in fact, that there were parody films about cheese mites. Uh, We we don't necessarily think of the cheese mite film as being a genre, a cinematic genre these days, but (laughs) a century ago it was. Megan, I'm wondering about women's experiences with microscopes. That might not be something that comes immediately to mind when we think about microscope use in the Victorian period. Yeah, this is really interesting, too, because women did quite often use microscopes, uh, sometimes because they were married to men who were working microscopists and the two had a working partnership. Women were well known and respected as scientific illustrators. And so it is not uncommon to see a woman recognized in the preface to a microscopical book as the illustrator or engraver. Of, of the plates. And then there were efforts to bring microscopes into household life 
more broadly. So, I mean, one example would be Edwin Lancaster, who was a physician and a public health reformer. And he wrote at one point that the microscope has become so much an instrument of education that every person ought to possess one, not only those who make scientific investigations, but also every housewife, because the microscope could be used to detect adulterations in bread or milk or flour. Uh, So there there are occasional references to the microscope in the kitchen uh, and the, the kitchen microscopist. I think probably most women encountered microscopy in the course of what you might call parlor microscopy, either going to a soiree at someone else's house or having a a microscope in their own parlor. One figure who was instrumental in promoting this kind of parlor microscopy would be Mary Ward. She's just a a fascinating person. She was an Irish naturalist and astronomer, uh, and she wrote books that that popularized science. She also had eight children, so she must have been very busy. But she she wrote, for example, the sketches with the microscope in 1859, which was a, a very successful book. And people who were just starting out would be likely to buy this book to help them understand what they were seeing through the lens and to um, give them a, a sense of here are some basic objects and how you how you look at them and what you might expect to see. I'm thinking about uh, ways in which Victorians used microscopes for what we would think of as, you know, very specifically aesthetic purposes. So I'm thinking about microscopic handwriting, about very tiny works of art made through uh, the arrangement of tiny things like butterfly eggs. And these things were, you know, created to be viewed through a microscope. Did you want to talk about those aspects of microscopic culture, Megan? Sure. Yeah. It is so interesting to see how the microscope was not just a tool of science, but also a tool of recreation and, and even, even art is, you know, how at, at times it was described. So that one good example might be the examination of diatoms, which are little unicellular algae. So for example, this one book talks about them as a little disc sculptured and fretted with marvelous workmanship, with ornamentation more elaborate and more beautiful than that of any rose window in the finest continental cathedral. That's from a a book about my microscope uh, by a Quecket clubman. <laughs> so, and this, he was not the only one to, to make this analogy. And sometimes people would not just admire the diatoms themselves, but would create these elaborate exhibition slides, art slides, where they would arrange diatoms and, and other microscopic objects in these incredible, almost looking like a kaleidoscope image, uh, or sometimes uh, arrange them so they look like a, a bloom, you know, a basket of flowers, all, all kinds of different, very pretty and intricate, always very intricate ideal of beauty. But those were not the only kinds of exhibition slides because microscopic writing was also very intriguing to the Victorians. That's something that one of the most famous examples of that, there was a banker named William Peters, and he invented a microscopic writing machine. Um, I've seen it. It's uh, at the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford. It's actually in their stores now. I don't think it's on display, but it's taller than I am. It's this incredible big brass, you know, arrangement. And if you write with a pencil at one portion of it, a diamond will engrave what you're writing on a slide microscopically at another portion of it. And so, you know, this draws on a very old tradition of people, craftsmen, creating microscopic writing. But in the old tradition, it was always, you know, how many, you know, Lord's prayers can you fit on the head of a pin? You know, how many Bibles to the square inch is this? And what's so interesting to me about the microscopic writing is that they did write things like the Lord's Prayer, but also you find things like, here's a list of the members of the Microscopical Society of London. Here's a sonnet that I wrote about the International Exhibition of 1862, right? So there are elements there that are secularizing this tradition of microscopic writing while carrying it on. And then one other element of this kind of tiny artwork idea is, as you mentioned, photographs. So photography uh, was being developed during about the same time that microscopes were becoming more popular and more 
you know, frequently used in science as well as in general culture. And so there was, on the one hand, photomicrography, which is taking a photograph of a microscopic object. But on the other hand, there's microphotography, which is taking a photograph or a work of art and through, you know, using the camera, shrinking it down. These days we would think of it as microfilm. And one of the most famous developers of microphotography was John Benjamin Dancer, who was a Manchester businessman. And he had, I don't know, hundreds of different kinds of microphotographs that could be purchased. And you didn't have to have a microscope to look at these. They were also added into these little gadgets called Stanhopes. Uh, a Stanhope is a particular kind of lens. And so you might have a ring or a knob on the top of your cane or a little, you know, a dangling ornament on your watch chain. And when you put it up to your eye, you would see a photograph of the queen or of a, a you know, a famous uh, vacation spot or maybe even a pornographic image. So these micro photographs became very popular because they were an inexpensive way for ordinary people to enjoy kind of the this the secret world of of small things, right? Which was a, a longstanding trope of microscopy. And lastly, Megan, your work pairs the study of, of a machine and all these related practices with the study of literature. Is there an author or a literary work that you keep returning to in your research? Well, I mean that's that's such a good question because of course I think many of us who work on Victorian literature will immediately think of George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, um, which I, I have written on uh, in the past, and it is one of the most well-known and extended uh, literary treatments of, of microscopy. But I think what I'm more interested in actually are the fleeting mentions that turn up unexpectedly in places where the the novel is not about microscopy or science or even visuality necessarily. Um, and an example of that might be in um, Charles Dickens's Pickwick Papers, where the comic figure Sam Weller talks about um, going to see a gas microscope, which is the, the oxyhydrogen microscope or the lantern microscope that I was talking about earlier. I mean, he uses that as an analogy to, for something that is sensational and, and popular, this kind of mass, mass visual event. And there are little, little bits of references like that kind of dotted throughout so many different texts, and we don't necessarily recognize them because we're not that familiar with Victorian microscopical culture. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Megan. This has been great. We appreciate your time and also the knowledge you've shared with us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Dr. Richard Menke. Richard is a professor of English at the University of Georgia. His current research focuses on Victorian inventions and technologies, as well as research on media ecologies, resource ecologies, and literature in the 19th century. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks, Anne. Uh, so many listeners will know the 19th century as a time of intense social and technological development. What first drew you to the study of Victorian inventions? Well, really, I first became interested in 19th century technologies when I was writing a dissertation on Victorian literature as a graduate student living in Silicon Valley in the 1990s, the late 1990s. I was very aware of the hype and the excitement and the, the waves of technological change that were promising to alter our media environment and our culture more broadly, but in ways that we kind of didn't know yet then. Uh, back then, one of the questions about the internet was, okay, it's really cool, but what is it for? So I was also aware that a lot of the technologies that we depended on, uh, even in the late 20th century still, were basically Victorian technologies or kind of updated, souped up Victorian technologies. I grew up with phonograph records, the wired telephone, analog radio, chemical photography, incandescent light bulbs, even the electric telegraph, which would become the subject of my book, Telegraphic Realism, was still around. Although, sadly, I missed the chance to send or receive a telegram while the telegraph network was, was still in place. I think I'm still sorry about. So I wondered how the invention and adoption of new technologies had shaped 19th century literary cultures more broadly. 
and how the literary and technological imaginations might align or, or misalign or speak to each other. And invention and technology, I think, has some things in common with literature. Uh, they both have their big names, I guess you'd call it a canon, but also their everyday workers and creators, uh, which really interests me. Both invention and literature have a important relationships to capitalism, imperialism, gender in the 19th century, all these big topics. And they could also both be vehicles through which their audiences or their users uh, knew about and saw and heard the world more broadly when you think of a novel or a newspaper or a photograph. In a more recent book that I wrote, which is called Literature, Print Culture, and Media Technologies, Many Inventions, I was interested in how literature and literary culture at the turn of the 19th century didn't just draw on specific inventions such as the telegraph, although I still love telegraphs, but imagined an emerging culture of media multiplicity, a culture of invention. I wanted to show how authors rethought print and print culture now as one medium alongside a lot of new media with further new media to come in the future. I've edited a new edited volume that's uh, coming out next month called uh, Victorian Inventions in Technological Things, which is part of a series called Victorian Material Culture from Routledge. And your academic listeners might be interested in taking a look or recommending it to their libraries because there I kind of go through and try to document with original 19th century sources the relationships between print culture and cool or not so cool um, inventions and technologies. Sort of jumping off that, because you mentioned the sort of not so great inventions as well as as these really impressive ones. Uh, one 19th century object that you've studied in detail is the machine gun. Could you tell us a bit about its inventor and the significance of this object in the period? Yeah, definitely. I mean, first off, maybe I should say that, that I'm not actually a fan, you speaking personally. And I'm a literary scholar, not a military historian or even a historian of technology. So my interest reflects my own intellectual background, as well as my position as an American who teaches and writes about Victorian literature and about 19th and early 20th century literatures a little more globally as well. Pretty much ever since the first gunsmiths went to work, there were attempts to speed up the firing of guns in various ways. But it was a suite of 19th century developments in things like metallurgy, precision manufacturing with interchangeable parts, which is a really big deal, and even patent laws that help make rapid firing weapons unfortunately possible. So you could say that technologies such as the machine gun or the electric telegraph for that matter were invented many times by different people in different places. And you could even think of this as something like a, a craft phase perhaps in their histories. But after the work of people like Samuel Morse and Cook and Wheatstone on the electric telegraph, and you could say similar things about familiar names such as the American inventors, uh, Richard Gatling or Hiram Maxim in automatic or kind of almost automatic in the case of Gatling um, weapons. So Gatling had done well primarily as an agricultural inventor of items like uh, machines for, for sewing, um, and that is like sewing as in planting. Uh, the history of the sewing machine as in stitches is really, really fascinating, and it deserves a whole podcast, at least uh, maybe a series in itself. Um, but during the Civil War in the U.S. in the 1860s, Gatling was struck. It was sort of truly a kind of warfare on an epic scale. And Gatling was struck with the number of soldiers who were killed in the battlefield, especially by disease. Um, and he wondered about a machine that could fire so rapidly that it would save the labor of many soldiers. So you wouldn't need all those soldiers on the battlefield. It didn't seem to have occurred to him that they could just be on the battlefield firing even more deadly weapons. Um, so it's a great and profoundly troubling crystallization of the promise of technology in the 19th century, right? Here's this labor-saving device that is going to deliver mass carnage on a truly industrial scale. So those two sides of, of technology. And it comes to a U.S. that already had a kind of thriving firearm industry. In fact, you could say that Weapons manufacturing in the 19th century U.S. drove American industry in the way that like textiles drove uh, industry in, in a little bit earlier in northern England, that it really was a kind of core technology that was driving um, innovations that went on to affect other uh, industries as well. The Gatling gun arrived too late to have much of an impact on the American Civil War. But a decade later, the American author Mark Twain would have the chance to try one out at the Colt Manufactory in the industrial town of Hartford, Connecticut. In my book, Literature, Print, Culture, and Media Technologies, I've written about how Twain 
drew on his experiences with the Gatling gun, which he really, really enjoyed firing in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, and how those experiences of the Gatling gun and this industrial technology and industrial warfare became connected for Twain with his uh, bankrolling of an automatic compositing device that would set print automatically, kind of in the same way that the Gatling gun sent bullets uh, into place automatically. So part of the connection is that for Twain, his new typesetting device, which we might think would be pretty harmless and maybe even a positive thing, was supposed to obliterate the whole old-fashioned typesetting trade in the same way that the Connecticut Yankee massacres hordes of obsolete uh, Arthurian knights uh, with his, his Gatling gun. So the Gatling gun used a hand crank to move the next piece of ammunition into place. Uh, it wasn't truly automatic, and it's the ancestor of multi-barrel weapons like the, the rotary cannon. The Maxim gun was more of a true automatic weapon. Instead of a hand crank, it used the force of the gun's own recoil to load the next um, cartridge, to eject the old cartridge and load the new one. So it was mechanically really just brilliant. Another dramatic saving of human labor, another leap in the efficiency with which human life could be destroyed. Maxim was American, uh, like Gatling, uh, but he moved to England to produce and promote the Maxim gun, and he was a very successful promoter of it. Uh, for years, weapons such as the Gatling gun or the Maxim gun tended to be considered too brutal or unsportsmanlike or just too imprecise for battles against other Western armies, but they found other uses. Uh, they were just a thing to intimidate like, unruly workers on strike, especially uh, in America, make them disperse. And the Gatling and the Maxim became especially associated with colonial warfare, where its ability to kill and intimidate native armies offered a kind of psychological confirmation of the superiority of the colonizers' culture and knowledge. And Maxim himself became a British citizen and was knighted for his services to Britain and the empire. Um, as part of its attention to different technologies and different print cultures, my, my forthcoming collection includes a news story, an excerpt from a military memoir, and a kind of breathless article on how great the, uh, the Maxim gun is. And this article begins by lamenting the number of lives lost to warfare. But then it goes on to say, basically, however you feel about the morality of inventing new, uh, even more destructive weapons, uh, you have to admit that this thing is amazing. So uh, again, that kind of doubleness of excitement at technology and lamenting the effect that that technology is going to have uh, is present even in these, these early representations. That's really interesting. This sort of cognitive dissonance on the page, uh, even at the time of its invention. And we see that echoed, you know, in social media, um, which brings me to my last question, which is our own moment of widespread gun violence will shape the way that many of us understand the history of this object. Many Victorian inventions have legacies entangled with the benefit of their original use and the lasting harms that they've brought, as you've touched on. Did you want to comment on the difference between the invention of the machine gun and the invention of other Victorian machines with legacies of real, but importantly, unintended harm? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, perversely, as I say, some of the 19th century inventors, well, really probably Gatling more than, than Maxim, uh, at times expressed what seemed like some strangely sunny hopes for their devices. So I actually don't know that there's such a bright line between, say, all these idealistic hopes that the electric telegraph is going to bring peace between the nations and these brutal rep weapons of war. And that, that's part of my point with Twain's sponsorship of this new machine for typesetting and his allied fascination with high-tech weapons. Conceptually, the Gatling gun could be seen as having a connection to Gatling's earlier sewers. Um, it just sort of, you know, puts these more or less uniform items, you know, right into place and moves on. The elaborate mechanisms for quickly and uniformly handling metal, explosions, heat, high speed, these kind of suggest a 19th century or a late 19th century industrial ideal that you can also see at work in the combustion engine, right? So beyond this technophilia or technological fetishism, which is very much a 19th century structure feeling that I try not to, to share, there's sometimes a fantasy that a weapon will be so destructive that it will go unused. Uh, you know, a fantasy that certainly didn't correspond to the, the reality of the machine gun. So you know, the topic of gun violence just fills me with, with grief and dismay. But it also seems significant to me 
that no one in the 19th century, uh, not even the Americans, is foreseeing a populace that's armed with these weapons of war, uh, or which has a right to be. That is a modern American invention. On the contrary, at least before we get to the First World War, these weapons might be even too cruel and indiscriminate for actual use between civilized nations. And of course, we can note the irony of the word civilized there and of 19th century Anglophone cultures intertwined pursuits of war, uh, invention, commerce, profit, uh, all in the name of civilization, even though that culture itself tended not to note that irony. You build really interesting and rich connections between both the past environment in which these inventions were brought to light and used and sort of the implications today. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. It's been a pleasure. Jason Camelot is a professor at Concordia University, a poet and the principal investigator of the Spoken Web Project. He's also the author of Bono Poetics, The Making of Early Literary Recordings. We invited Jason to speak with us about phonographs, an invention with special appeal for those of us interested in the sounds of the 19th century. Welcome, Jason. It's great to be here. Thanks, Vanessa. Jason, can I ask you to offer us an introduction to the phonograph, maybe a little bit about how a phonograph works? Sure, it'd be my pleasure. So the phonograph was actually first invented or introduced by Thomas Edison in 1877. Uh, and basically, it's a cylindrical mandrel upon which you would put a substance that a stylus can record sounds onto via a horn that would capture the air pressure that's generated from the sounds that sort of communicates them through a very thin diaphragm that vibrates, which then makes the stylus or needle move and leave marks on that surface. The reason I haven't described what kind of surface it is is because in 1877 it was tin foil, but then by 1888 Edison introduced his perfected phonograph and they were experimenting with different kinds of wax-based paraffin substances. And so the phonograph is sort of, we know it as the uh, sort of more lasting acoustic recording and playing technology was uh, a machine that played cylinders that had sound recorded onto them. Could we talk about Thomas Edison's predictions about the uses, or maybe we could call them the affordances of sound recording? Speech featured really largely in his vision of the future of the phonograph, yes? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, and we could talk about his predictions. We could talk about, I, I would almost think of it as Edison's promotional imaginary, right? That he's sort of imagining possibilities in a way also trying to sort of lay claim to as many possibilities of the use of this technology, which was barely invented when he was writing essays predicting what it would be. And as you say, speech was a big part of it. So really, the primary use that he had in his mind to begin with was for office work and basically to capture dictation. So he imagined the phonograph as, in the first instance, really uh, an office uh, machine where uh, one could dictate letters, but then not necessarily send them in the mail. That idea came a bit later. But then, you know, uh, someone else would transcribe them and send them as typed uh, letters. So rather than handwrite, you know, the drudgery of the pen is a phrase that he used in one of these early uh, predictive essays. And he imagined that people would, would use it to, to transcribe, to, to speak letters that then someone else could transcribe or type up and, and mail for them. He also did stress very early on the potential to capture modes of performance and sort of especially sort of high elocutionary modes that would exemplify the best usage of, of the spoken word. He thought a lot about in these early predictive essays, he published a couple of them, one in 1877 and one in 1888, not coincidentally. He, he, he thought a lot about what this would mean for the preservation of voices of the past into the future. And so he spoke quite early on of establishing archives of great voices uh, that we could listen to on important occasions to remember the significance of those figures. And he, he made claims to a kind of connection between hearing someone's voice and a kind of 
index of the speaker's character so that somehow, even if we could read, you know, volumes of, say, an author's works to hear their voice represented in these kind of, remember, promotional slash predictive essays, a more immediate access to the, the figure, him or herself. Yeah. Some of it was quite intimate or family-oriented, yes. I recall something about the last words of the dying being part of what he envisioned capturing. Yeah, that's right. He had this very early sort of synecdochic view of what the phonograph could could do in terms of capturing a person's entire life. And he does talk about, you know, capturing the final words of, you know, loved ones so that we could sort of keep them with us uh, beyond the grave. And that kind of seance almost eerie, you know, evocation or sense of what the phonograph represented continued and persisted, you know, beyond Edison's early sort of promotional writings about uh, what the phonograph might mean. And there's a, a sort of a famous... Uh, gathering of people uh, a year after the death of Robert Browning, who made some recordings where they performed a kind of sonic seance, one might say, where they sort of a year after he had died, brought him back to life, so to speak, as a vocalic body, you know, uh, by replaying uh, a recording that he'd made uh, before he died. With poets in mind, let's turn to phonopoetics, if we could. Uh, in your book, you explore the history of wax cylinder recordings of authors reading their work aloud. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of what we might conceive now as kind of early audiobooks. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, phonopoetics really looks at spoken recordings from the earliest sound recordings ever made through the acoustic and into the early electrical period of sound recordings. So, it goes from, you know, the 18, 1877, although there are no extant tinfoil phonograph recordings from that period. So, really, the earliest recordings are from around 1888. Um, although there have been phonautographs that have been sonified that were made in the 1860s. That's another story, and I could talk about it if you want. You know, it's our colleague Patrick Feaster who, uh, and David Giovanoni who worked on this really remarkable sonification project. But I look at sort of a whole range of, of recording uh, media formats through this acoustic era in particular. So not only phonograph cylinders, but also gramophone flat disc recordings. And I listened to as many of the spoken recordings that were made from this period that I could get my hands on and my ears on and began to think about sort of what in, in particular sort of works of literature sounded like and what it meant to have adaptations of, of literary works in sound from this early period. And poems were in, in one sense a lot easier to imagine because they're you know, especially lyric poems or recitation staples, they're shorter pieces and they were sort of designed to be recited in a three to four minute period of time, which was more or less the capacity of your average phonograph cylinder or even flat disc record that played at 78 RPM revolutions per minute. But when you got to sort of adapting a novel, for example, to these media formats, it became a little bit, you know, well, just unimaginable, actually. You know, how do you, how do you put a long, you know, full-length Dickens novel on, uh, and sort of somehow adapt it to four minutes of sound? Or if you wanted to capture the entire thing, you know, how many cylinders would that take? It would take many hundreds of cylinders, right? So uh, in one of the chapters in Phonopoetics, I sort of think about well, early adaptations of, uh, of fiction to the phonographic media. They used a few different tactics, you know, but one of the main ones was actually to do sort of character monologues based on minor characters from these novels and sort of a four-minute monologue, which was a kind of summary of all of the most ticky and sort of uh, sort of dialect identifiable, you know, uh, speech traits of a minor character, because uh, usually that's how minor characters are identify, uh, identifiable in novels anyways. They don't have depth. They just have sort of ticks. <laughs> uh, that's what a lot of those early adaptations of fiction to sound sounded like. And then there were a few others that were more based on dramatizations of novels. So they would take just a, a very short scene from a, a longer dramatic adaptation of the novel to the stage, which is a very common thing in the Victorian period was to sort of, you know, adapt a novel uh, to, to the stage. They would take usually these sort of key transformation scenes. So the moments when something really dramatic changes, you know, so the examples I give of, of some of these are 
when Svengali mesmerizes Trilby for the first time, or, you know, when Jekyll transforms into Hyde, or when Ebenezer Scrooge confronts one or more of the ghosts of Christmas past, past but especially uh, the scene where he turns from being Scroogey to being, you know, benevolent and kind. So that's that transformation. So a lot of these early records were sort of capturing these important moments of transformation. In a sense, the um, the payoff of the novel without the novel itself. I think I should return us to the realm of poetry, Jason, and that we should listen to an example. This is poet Alfred Tennyson reading his poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. This is a well-known and widely available recording. It's a wax cylinder recording, and it dates from 1890. So let's listen to just a portion of it now. You're very familiar with this recording, Jason. What would you like to highlight about it? Well, first of all, this was a recording among several that Tennyson made when he was playing around with a machine that was given to him by one of Edison's agents who was uh, set up in London. His name was Gouraud, and he was he was sort of capturing celebrity voices, using them to promote the phonograph, and also you know letting a few famous people use them so that they could possibly make use of these again for promotional purposes, uh, but also possibly for posterity. And I, I often teach this recording among other sound recordings in not only Victorian lit classes but just different classes to think about method, right? Because I don't know about you, but the first time I heard this, I couldn't make any sense of it at all. It just sounded like noise to me, right? So one of the things to think about from our perspective when you hear a recording like that is what is it that we're listening to and how do we actually go about listening? I think that encountering an old recording like that that wasn't well-preserved, it was discovered in the 60s, it had been kept in, in the less than optimal conditions, apparently somewhere near a, a radiator, you know, so which isn't great for wax objects, you know, um, was quite banged up. And but we, we hear this now, and it's sort of like, okay, how do we listen to this, right? What do we hear? It makes you confront, in a sense, your, your what Jonathan Stern would call your audile techniques, you know, uh, or your techniques of listening, your methods of listening. Um, so it's very useful just for that to think about well, what and how, uh, what are we listening to? How do we listen to it? Uh, what does it mean to listen to this sort of historical thing? And what can we make of it? And initially, you might not even hear words, but the more you listen to it, so I've listened to it many times, you know, by now, and I hear all kinds of subtlety in, in it, you know, um, from, you know, this repeated listening practice that I've engaged in with this and other similar sorts of recordings. And, you know, in the opening to Phonopoetics, I actually, you know, talk about this particular recording for its strangeness, its kind of eeriness, uh, in part. I remember once I played it in a classroom. I uh, played the whole thing, and uh, and then there was just silence afterwards. And then one of the students from the back of the room said, "Thank you for the nightmares, Professor Camlot." You know, because <laughs> like, it does sound a bit like a horror film in some ways. You know, you really don't know what it is. Um, but but the more you're able to, in a sense, acclimatize your ears to it, you can hear you can hear the medium on it. So you can actually hear, in a sense, the the material of the wax cylinder. And so there's a lot of media sound, which is very interesting, as well as the imperfections in the medium, which result in all kinds of things that evoke um, in our minds possible actual actions or sound effects or something like that. Or, you know, Christopher Ricks, when he talks about this sound recording, attributes some of the banging. You hear these knocking sounds at different times. Uh, and he... In his mind, he says Tennyson was banging the board, meaning like he was keeping time, you know. But really, it, it was probably just imperfections in the cylinder that resulted in these 
things that sounded like knocking, right? So there's sort of what Michel Chion would call sort of our inclination to do kind of causal listening attributions where we would hear something and say, that's someone banging wood or that's someone knocking at the door or whatever, you know. Uh, but I think a lot of the sound in that recording is coming from the medium itself. But then the other very interesting thing, obviously, is to hear, well, how did Tennyson read his poem? You know, um, how did he actually go about interpreting his poem orally? Uh, we're, we're used to doing interpretation by reading silently and then writing things that we find, unpacking, telling people what the poem is really saying, you know, <laughs> not what the words seem to be saying. But when you hear a recitation like that or a, a reading or an, you know, an oral performance of a poem, it's also a form of interpretation, right? And so uh, we have this amazing opportunity to listen to and try to decipher Tennyson's vocal interpretation of his own work. Where did he emote? How did he, did he distinguish between voices, you know, um, within the poem? How did he try to express or communicate uh, the sorrow uh, that is expressed at the end as a result of the the deaths and losses that are recounted in that poem. So you know, the more the more I've listened to it, the more I have been sort of interested in focusing on Tennyson's sort of rendition. You know, his own uh, in a sense unpacking of his poem with his voice. And I, and I also think about this poem in relation to quite a few other recorded recitations of the poem that were made sort of soon after, uh, sort of in, in t at the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century, but, but clearly by Victorian actors and elocutionists. So by individuals who are trained, men and women, by the way, uh, who are trained in how to sort of interpret orally and uh, often in very sort of prescribed ways where they would perform certain kinds of vocal actions like vibrato or like rising versus falling intonation, specifically to communicate a particular kind of emotional cue so that if your voice is rising or if your voice is wavering slowly, so has a slow vibrato, meaning like sort of rolling hills rather than really sharp hills, you know, then that means wistful melancholy, right? You know, so there, there was a kind of uh, known repertoire uh, vocal actions and intonations that uh, suggested particular kinds of emotion or affective expression. And so, yeah, I was really interested in thinking about what Tennyson was doing with his poem that way, and then to think of it also in relation to other very early interpretations, not by the author in that case, but by other interpreters of his poem uh, who happened to record them as well. Just lastly, Jason, what would you like to say about how our understanding of the 19th century is enriched by the study of sound, or maybe more specifically about how it's enriched by the study of the machines that feature in the history of sound recording? So I've been researching the history of sound and sound recording media technologies and formats in relation to literary performance for quite a long time now. And in a way, my, my entire career is focused on the relationship between media technologies and formats, whether they be, you know, it started with print media and periodicals. And I've, as you know, I've been interested in, you know, uh, Victorian sort of manuscript albums. And so I'm very interested in these sort of material formats and how they inform literary forms and ideas of the literary in particular, right? And so I've been doing that uh, with sound for a long time. Um, I spent quite a lot of time researching materials, some of which was published in Phonopoetics on that very early acoustic era period. Um, and with the Spoken Web a research program, we're really focusing on um, recordings that were made from the 1950s on. So this, these are very different media formats. So reel-to-reel -reel tape machines in particular, leading into audio cassette and, you know, those kinds of analog but electronic media. And so sort of thinking across this range of media technologies across history in relation to the range of literary forms, you know, I've been really interested in thinking about how media have affordances, right? Media technologies and media formats have affordances, but also how literary forms or genres have their own affordances. And I've been especially interested in thinking about the confrontation, uh, the kind of relationship between media formats 
and literary forms and how sometimes they really work well in harmony or inform each other or almost complement each other. And sometimes they really bump up against each other in, and result in very interesting things. So I think the, you know, the early adaptations of a Victorian novels, the sound is an example of them bumping up against each other. You can't, you couldn't at that time put a novel uh, the way you can uh, now with like, you know, if you, if you have a subscription to Audible or something like that in digital formats, you, you couldn't put a novel uh, into a single file or onto a single cylinder. You would need hundreds and it was just was not plausible, not possible. So that's one thing that I would share, you know, just sort of that uh, I've been interested in historical confrontations between format and form, but also through the Spoken Web Project, I've been I've become increasingly interested in sort of more practice-based approaches to thinking about these things. A few years ago, I, I came to your institution with a whole bunch of stuff to show people, right? Um, these were sort of manuscript albums and sort of gift books and things like that. But I've had the opportunity to develop a kind of, we call it the AMP Lab, but it's a sort of small lab space where I've been able to bring in, acquire, and um, and use, and, and sort of think about the use of and learn about a whole bunch of sound recording media technologies from cylinder phonograph through early transcription disc recorders, which was the first medium that was used to record radio and jingles for radio, but also was a medium that was used to record some some poets, early modern poets like Gertrude Stein and T.S. Eliot and Robert Frost and, and others, to a whole bunch of reel-to-reel -reel tape machines. And it's been really interesting to engage with students in projects that actually have them thinking about these media technologies and practicing things with them. Because I think, you know, it's sort of like if, you do, if you're interested in book history, it's the same sort of thing. You want to understand how a book is made and you want to take it apart <laughs> to understand that and then think about its implications for the way the literary text was uh, shaped and disseminated by that form. I'm thinking about my grad seminar that I'm going to teach in the fall. I'm thinking that for that course, I will likely assign a few very hands-on sort of tasks that will require my students to actually learn how to use, engage with, and think about the implications of the media technology and formats in relation to the audio texts or texts uh, that they'll be analyzing. This has been great, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, well, great to catch up with you, Vanessa, and really great to talk to you about all of these things that, that I love to talk about. Thank you to Megan Kennedy, Richard Menke, and Jason Camlot. You can learn more about their research by visiting our website. This podcast is the co-creation of Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, Lucy Von Schilling, and me, Vanessa Warren. We do our work on the territory of the Lungkwangan and Sinchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Learn more about the Crafting Communities Project by visiting craftingcommunities.net or by following us on Instagram at crafty underscore Victorians. You can email us at craftyvictorians at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. The Crafting Communities Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. Crafting Communities is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening.